Welcome to the Chrisman Commentary Daily Mortgage News Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Chrisman. I've been told to uh, inject a little more personality in these things. So live from the desert in Moab, Utah, America's most overrated town, (laughs) topics on today's episode include growing and shrinking metro areas. My interview with NAR's Jessica Louts on the latest inflation figures in the Fed's calculus moving forward and how the lack of housing inventory continues to help the home builder community. Thanks to today's podcast sponsor, Richie May. Richie May is a recognized leader in providing specialized advisory, audit, tax, technology, and other services to the mortgage industry for almost four decades. Among many awards, Richie May has been named a top 100 firm twice and is known in the market for their education and contributions to the mortgage industry. They don't just hire from the mortgage industry, they have the experts who build it. To experience how Richie May can help you transform your mortgage business, visit RichieMay.com. Seven of the ten fastest growing metro areas over the past year are in Florida. The Census Bureau tells us there was population growth for about two-thirds of U.S. metro areas during this time, but the villages Florida, yes, as in the STD capital of America, Villages, I promise you I didn't make that up, have the greatest percent increase at 7.5%. And no, we're not talking about bacteria. (laughs) The metro area of Myrtle Beach, Conway, North Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, North Carolina, came in second and saw population climb by 5.0%. The metro area of Dallas experienced the largest numerical population increase, seeing the population climb by 170,396, or 2.2%, from July 1st of 2021 to July 1st of 2022. The metro area of Halma, Louisiana, had the greatest percent decline over this time range, and two other metro areas in Louisiana were among the 10 fastest shrinking metros. For today's interview, I wanted to welcome onto the show NAR's Jessica Louts to talk about the latest inflation figures and the Fed's calculus moving forward. She's Deputy Chief Economist and Vice President of Research at the National Association of Realtors, and the core of her research focuses on analyzing trends for both NAR members and housing consumers. Through the management of surveys, focus groups, and data analysis, she presents new and innovative ways to showcase results effectively utilizing research data to educate and impact policymakers on the state of the housing market, as well as discussing research findings in major media outlets and international presentations. All right, let's talk inflation. And and I want to kind of get into the nuts and bolts here for a minute. And, And I'll start by asking you to explain how's the CPI calculated versus the PCE? And why do people say that the PCE is the Fed's preferred measure of inflation? Yeah, so CPI is the change in out-of-pocket expenditures. So when you go to the grocery store or you're going to hit the gas pump or you need to buy a new TV for your household. Um, and But I think the big thing to keep in mind here is that we're looking at urban households. The PCE is the change in goods and services consumed by all households. So we're including folks in rural areas, uh, small towns, which right now is incredibly important when we think about the mass migration flow that we had in the last couple of years to people who are not just in city centers anymore. What about headline inflation versus core inflation? Uh, Core inflation strips out food and energy prices. 
Why is that important for getting a, a better sense of what's going on out there? So that's incredibly volatile. So I know that when we head to the grocery store, we probably have a set budget. At the end of the month, we're trying to hit that or keep keep near that. Um, but we have to remember, too, that even weather changes and can have an impact on how much you're going to be paying at the grocery store. Suddenly, the prices of eggs went up um, so astronomically, but we know that that can happen to other goods too. Um, just thinking about uh, meat prices or looking at produce prices, those can change quite a bit. And then, of course, when you head to the gas pump, there's always fluctuation. Um, we may have a budget on that, but sticking to that budget could be quite difficult depending on what's going on in the world as well and politics. So taking those out makes a little more sense when we're thinking about inflation. And so I want to bring this a little closer to home here. And, and you work on the realtor side of things. I'm, I'm deep in the residential lending side of things. Why does low inflation lead to low mortgage rates? Or why does it mean low mortgage rates? I mean, both you and I and everybody probably listening to this, we're all hoping for increased home sales and increased home production from builders on the horizon, lower rates, those sorts of things. Yeah. So we we got two readings of numbers just this last week. So one was that inflation has ticked down and now we're looking at 3%. Um, the ideal is 2%. The other uh, reading that we got, unfortunately, the late last week from Freddie uh, was that the 30-year fixed had ticked up all the way to 6.9%. And that's near the highest that we've seen it actually in eight months. So, so looking back at that peak that we saw in November of last year. Um, why is this important? Well, this is going to directly impact home sales because if the Fed sees that inflation is going up, they're going to say, nope, we're going to have to uh, raise rates and that's going to have a ripple effect into the mortgage industry. All of this said, the Fed's looking at 2% as their target, and 3% is still above that. So I think we have to wait and see what happens. But I think the big thing here, as we're looking at mortgage interest rates, it becomes really important to think about the lack of inventory that we have. Uh, so if interest rates go down, we're going to see more buyers come into the market who have been priced out, who haven't been able to afford a market where we have near 7% interest rates. So it sounds like when it comes to existing home sales, a lot of that inventory or supply is going to be driven by mortgage rates. But the other thing that could add to supply is new homes hitting the market. And so why is there this inventory problem on the on the builder side of things? It seems like a lot of the supply chain issues uh, the past couple of years or, or the, the increases in uh, wood, uh, or excuse me, the increases in lumber costs or or labor have have kind of come down why are we still seeing that inventory problem yeah so we actually have been underbuilding in the US for about a decade so in the last year we have seen that building has has started ramping up we're seeing new home sales are ramping up too so these are both good signs housing starts all of these are are up um but we have to do this for a longer period of time to really get to that missing inventory. If we look in the U.S. today, we're short about 6.5 million homes, up to 6.5 million homes. So it's going to take a while to get those homes onto the market. The supplies are one part of that equation. The other parts of that equation, too, of course, is labor. And when we look at construction workers and their expertise that they bring, 
We actually know that their median age is upwards into their 50s. This has not been an attractive career prospect for a lot of people uh, to go into these skilled trades that actually you can make really good incomes in. And as people steered away from it, there has been a really incredible labor shortage in this area. The other issues too are lands or uh, density uh, restrictions in some communities, uh, laws on the books saying you need two parking spaces for every unit built. Well, it's a studio and there's probably going to be one person with one car there. There's a lot of silly stuff on the books there in local communities, and we just have to work through those issues to get the the supply there. And so you mentioned we're short six and a half million units. What's that based on? And I guess, how do we gauge demand that's out there when mortgage rates are so high? Are are there models Mm -hmm. that say, oh, if rates came down a a percent or two, we'd have this many more applications. How how does that work? Yeah. So when we're looking at that, we're doing, we looked at an analysis um, that we had the Rosen group out of Berkeley uh, do for us uh, last year. And so this is based on his analysis, his group's analysis. Now, what I will say is that when we're looking at this, the demand is there because we're seeing this really interesting demographic uh, situation in the country today. We have a lot of young adults. The the most young adults that we have in this country today are between the ages of 26 and 32. And that's traditionally where we see household formation happening, where those young adults would be buying their first home if we had that available inventory. At the exact same time, we have seniors who are aging in place and they're healthier later in life and they're feeling good being in their own uh, primary residence. And so they're not giving that up and moving into family members' homes or into nursing homes like we may have seen in generations past. And so it's really putting these pressures into the housing market because of the lack of available inventory. I want to talk a little bit about National Association of Realtors. Can you explain where NAR fits into the overall ecosystem here and, and how what you're doing on the research side of things uh, and, and kind of the, the puzzle piece that you are and, and where it slots into everything? Yeah, absolutely. So our research group is uh, working out of the National Association of Realtors. Uh, we're, we're a small group, but we are putting out tons of research and we hope that it's helpful to realtors out there, uh, but also to mortgage brokers. We want to be a source of information that you can rely on to understand who the buyers are, who the sellers are, where the demand is coming from, how that's changing and shifting. Um, we think it's incredibly important to put that information into the hands of practitioners who are working with clients every day, but also into the hands of consumers because we want educated consumers as they go into this home buying process. And so we've talked about a lot of things today. We covered inflation, we covered mortgage rates, we covered uh, supply and demand in the housing space. What are you keeping your eye on moving forward through the remainder of the year? Uh, what, What data points do you feel like are really important for people to be looking at? Yeah. So there's a couple. One, I'm looking at inventory. I know we talked about that, but just to put some numbers to this and and really the struggle that we're facing today. If we look coming out of the Great Recession, we had about 4 million units in the marketplace. There was a lot. Uh, We had the inventory available at that time. If we look pre-pandemic, when we started singling or signaling um, the alarm bells that we really don't have enough inventory, pre-pandemic, we had 2 million units. 
Today, we have about 1 million units. So we, when we really talk about that, that does become a problem. Um, we know that there's also the lock-in effect of people having these low-rate mortgages, the golden handcuffs, but something in that person's life could change. And they, if they're getting a divorce, they're going to have to sell that house. Uh, so we know that, that that absolutely could happen. The other thing that I'm keeping an eye on too is all cash buyers. They've been about a quarter of the market since fall of last year. It's nearly a year at this point. Um, it's pretty significant. And I do think it's important as we look at this marketplace, knowing the housing equity that a lot of baby boomers have as they make these housing trades. They're less interest rate sensitive, especially knowing that we have this high elevated share of these buyers out there today. I think it's quite important to take a look at that too. And I, I want to close by asking you, I'm, I have a lot of friends that are looking to become first-time home buyers. They don't have equity built up in homes that they're looking to get in the market. Is there such thing as timing the market? When, when would you tell them the best time is to buy a house? Would you wait this out until rates come down? Is it better, always better to get in sooner rather than later? What's, what's your advice that you give people? Oof. Um, I, I love, and I hate this question because I, you know, I think it's so incredibly personal when we look at this and what's, what's going to be the important driver for that buyer. Um, obviously if they find that perfect home, if they're in that perfect income and they feel like they can afford that and they're going to stay put for a while, absolutely move on it. Um, because you can refinance at a later time for sure. I think the other thing to keep in mind too, is that at, our expectation at NAR, our forecast, is that rates will tick down, that that we do see that inflation is easing, the Fed will pay attention to this, hopefully, um, and that interest rates will come down for the 30-year fixed. And as we see that, we're going to have multiple offers come back if we don't have more inventory in the market. Right now, we see over three offers for every home that's listed. So we still have competition in the marketplace and about a third of homes are moving more than the asking price. So if we see that fierce competition back, that could be bad for first-time home buyers. That's an excellent point about uh, increased competition if we see rates come down. Jessica, I really enjoyed this interview. Thank you very much for making the time for me today. Thank you. This was great. With signs that central banks around the globe are making progress in their fight against inflation, global bond yields have fallen as of late, and treasury yields across the curve rallied once again yesterday on the heels of the UK CPI cooling more than expected. That's the United Kingdom. That move was also aided by the release of a below-consensus housing starts report for June that fell 8% on a month-over-month and year-over-year basis coming in at 1.434 million annualized when it was expected at 1.475 million, and the prior reading was 1.559 million. Building permits were not much better, coming in at 1.440 million when they were expected at 1.472 million, and the prior figure was 1.496 million. The drop was broad-based, with both single-family and multifamily production pulling back during the month. This month's numbers showed a striking shift away from multifamily towards single-family. The lack of housing inventory continues to help the home builder community despite higher mortgage rates. Signs continue to point to a clearing of previous backlogs caused by material and labor shortages, and demand remains sufficient given the ongoing lack of existing homes available for sale. Accordingly, builders are cutting back on sales incentives, which is 22% reporting that they cut pricing in July, down from 25% in June and 27% in May. The number of multifamily units under construction is at record levels, while single-family units under construction are in the middle of its historical range. 
Today's economic calendar is underway with weekly jobless claims, which came in at 228,000, lower than expected, with 1.754 million continuing claims, and Philadelphia Fed manufacturing, which was down slightly from last month. Later today brings leading indicators and existing home sales, both for June, and month-end supply consisting of two five- and seven-year notes, and $22 billion of two-year FRNs, a treasury auction of $17 billion in 10-year tips, and Freddie Mac's primary mortgage market survey. We begin the day with agency MBS prices worse an eighth to a quarter, the 10-year yielding 3.79 after closing yesterday at 3.74%, and the two-year at 4.84%, meaning the 2.10 yield curve inversion is as steep as ever. 110 basis points. Oofta, as they say in Minnesota. <laughs> or sorry, Fargo, North Dakota. Let's wrap up with a joke and some housekeeping. A young engineer was leaving the office at 5.45 p.m. when he found the CEO standing in front of a shredder with a piece of paper in his hand. Listen, the CEO said, this is a very sensitive and important document, and my secretary is not here. Can you make this thing work? Certainly, said the young engineer. So he turned on the machine, inserted the paper, and pressed the start button. Excellent, excellent, Smithers, <laughs> said the CEO as his paper disappeared inside the machine. I just need one copy. <laughs> Lesson is never, never assume that your boss knows what they're doing. Thanks again to Richie May, a recognized leader in providing specialized advisory, audit, tax, technology, and other services to the mortgage industry for almost four decades. To experience how Richie May can help you transform your mortgage business, visit richiemay.com. If you have any questions about the podcast or sponsoring opportunities, send me an email at Robbie at robchrisman.com. Visit robchrisman.com for more information on our industry partners, access to archived commentaries, and how to subscribe to the daily mortgage news and commentary. To listen to or download past episodes of this podcast, search Mortgage News on any platform you get your podcast from.